Hi, I'm Ran Levy. Welcome back to Malicious Life in collaboration with Cyberism. They've got insurance for everything. You can get an insurance policy on your house, your car, everything else you own, your business and its employees, your health, even your death. Just about anything of value that can be lost or damaged can be insured. It stands to reason then that computer systems, network infrastructure, physical machines and data should also be insured in case of loss or damage. In past episodes of our podcast, we've told stories where huge amounts of money are stolen from private companies. There was Valve, which claimed to have lost $250 million in revenue to a lone hacker, and Mt. Gox, which lost 1 million Bitcoin under their control. Target owed customers $18.5 million in legal damages after their payment systems got hacked. In none of these cases had we mentioned, even thought to mention, that these companies could have, in theory, largely covered those losses with one simple solution. The solution is so simple, in fact, that we are left asking, what's wrong with cyber insurance that it's not much more prevalent in the world today? Well, one obvious answer is that cyberspace is risky for insurance companies. Typically, cyber attacks don't occur in a vacuum. When we talk about Equifax or Target or Mt. Gox on Malicious Life, we do so because these are outstanding stories and not the norm. Usually, hackers spread their attacks to hundreds, even thousands of victims. Think Gozi or Conficker or the Melissa virus. If an insurer had lots of clients under cyber policies during the Conficker outbreak, they'd have been on the hook for lots and lots of huge payments all coming in at once. And there's a second problem. Say you're an insurer preparing a policy covering somebody's car. You can estimate with some certainty how likely that person is to get into a car accident based on his or her age, how many accidents they had before, what type of car they're driving, and so on. And because every car accident imaginable has already happened a million times, there's no claim this person could file that could really catch you off guard. Now, imagine you're preparing a policy covering a company's IT infrastructure. How likely is it that those computers will be subject to harm? Well, you might consider the size of the company, the nature of their business, and so on. But there are lots more factors that aren't so easy to estimate. Not just how likely a cyber attack is, but how serious the damage would be should one occur. 
cyber attacks very widely. A laced email opened by a secretary might download an unpleasant malvertising bug to their computer, or it might allow in a highly sophisticated virus that spreads throughout the company, burrows itself into every computer, and corrupts the entire network along its way. Sure, my name is Jeffrey Smith. Uh, my company is uh, Cyber Risk Underwriters. We uh, underwrite, distribute cyber insurance primarily to uh, small to medium enterprise companies under, say, a half a billion dollars in revenue. I met Jeffrey last August in Las Vegas at Black Hat 2019, where he gave a talk about cyber insurance. Actually, the first of its kind in Black Hat's history. It's new and it's fun and it's different. And I got to tell you, the people that I meet... Um, at Black Hat and the, the security people that I meet are so much more interesting than the insurance people that I deal with for the last, have dealt with for the last 25 years. Low bar, okay? <laughs> but fascinating because, you know, th they're so much more interesting and they're a lot of fun um, and the stories I hear are fascinating. Surprisingly, when I asked him about the two challenges we noted, the risk of large-scale malware outbreaks and the difficulty in assessing a company's security posture, he didn't seem too worried. In fact, he had good answers to both questions. First, the risk of a large-scale outbreak. Well, insurers, um, insurers are clever about managing their, their portfolio. You know, they buy reinsurance and then the reinsurers buy reinsurance. And so ultimately the risk is spread across, you know, that's the concept of insurance is to spread the losses of a few amongst the many. And as for assessing the strength of a potential client's cyber defenses, it turns out that insurers have ways of mitigating risk for themselves while offering helpful services to their customers both before and after a hack has occurred. So the underwriting process actually can act as a, a checks and balances or um, an outside perspective on a, on a firm's security posture. So in that process, there's an assessment. Um, a lot of the new insurers are actually using hacker tools like pen testing to do assessments, and they come back with recommendations. Um, the coverage is an insurance contract. Uh, once policy is issued, there are, two, there are three primary components of the policy. There's uh, first-party coverages. There are third-party coverages. And then, most importantly, in my opinion, there are uh, services that are provided. And these services are something that differentiate cyber insurance from other types of insurance, like property insurance or liability insurance. What kind of services, for example? Uh, for example, first-party insurance. And I, I don't like the terms first party and third party because it sounds like a, it's like a middle school grammar class and it confuses a lot of people. So the way I put it is uh, first party coverages are for your stuff. So that would include um, you have a breach. You have to have uh, what we call a breach coach, uh, somebody who you call who's been in crisis before and knows how to manage them. Um, PR people. Um, notifications. You'll have uh, specific lawyers who have expertise in cyber insurance and legislation litigation, and they will tell you immediately if you have notification requirements in the states that you're in, if you have HIPAA issues or other regulatory issues, reporting issues that you, you have to accommodate. Jeffrey is emphasizing the benefits these services have to his clients, and everything he's saying is true. But it's also true that these services help the insurers too. 
it's difficult to know how secure a company is against cyber attacks. Even the employees and executives at most companies tend not to have a clue. It's the reason why corporations keep getting hacked year after year, usually by adversaries far smaller and less well-resourced than they are. No insurer in their right mind could learn about the Target hack, the Equifax hack, Mt. Gox, Ashley Madison, Saudi Aramco, the DNC, or NASA without worrying about what entering this kind of market would do to their bottom lines. So they prepare against such cases by conducting their own testing and assessing their new clients' security postures. By the end, both parties have a better understanding of what risks that client faces. If the tests yield cautionary results, the client will warrant a more expensive policy. Additionally, by providing lawyers, coaches, and PR teams, the insurer can feel safe in the knowledge that the potential damages caused by a data breach would be mitigated to the fullest extent possible. This helps the client avoid headaches and helps the provider save on payouts. These protective measures go some way to make the market viable for both sides involved. But we still haven't answered our main question. If insurers have a way to mitigate their risk, why isn't cyber insurance taking off? Well, there's another issue that insurers have to account for data valuation. It's simply not that easy to assign dollar values to digital information. It's easy to insure a house or a car because such things are appraised. A house bought for $300,000 five years ago is probably worth somewhere around $300,000 in value today. But how much is someone's phone number worth? or 10 million people's phone numbers, or a set of metadata on how 10 million people interacted with your app, with their smartphones, over the past six months. These are tough questions, true? But frankly, even with more straightforward forms of insurance, we run into similar issues there are items that hold more value to their owner than they would an insurer, like a family heirloom or a picture book. Luckily, insurance have been around for quite a while. Disaster after disaster, case after case, lawsuit after lawsuit, we've come up with a set of norms and standards for how things should be covered. So, Maybe cyber insurance isn't more complicated. It's just less familiar. Maybe the market as a whole is still not experienced enough to have good answers to all the complicated edge cases we're likely to encounter. As decades pass and each new cyber catastrophe feels a little bit less unprecedented than the last, these rules will start to work themselves out or so you'd think. We're talking about cyber insurance like it's a new thing, when it's not. It's newer than most other types of insurance, but the industry has been around more than a few years already. 
Um, well, I've been in the insurance business about uh, you know twenty plus years, and um, cyber insurance started to get some traction. The product's been around for about twenty years, but it really started to get a lot of traction probably about ten years ago. There have already been cases, disasters, and lawsuits surrounding the cyber insurance industry. And yet, paradoxically, as the industry has developed, it hasn't established much faith in the wider community. I mentioned earlier that Jeffrey's talk in Black Hat 2019 was the first of its kind. That's because, in earlier events, the organizers rejected offers from people in the insurance industry to speak at the conference. Well, it's funny. Uh, one of my co-presenters had made submissions uh, to Black Hat, I think on five separate occasions, and each one was rejected. And uh, one of them, the rejection letter that I guess Black Hat used to give you an explanation, the rejection letter said, not at Black Hat. <laughs> Cyber insurance <laughs> is interesting, but not at Black Hat. And I, I think that I, I since the first year, there was a, a kind of a pushback. And I think the pushback was for two reasons. Um, one, I think a lot of the CISOs were concerned that uh, their efforts could be replaced by a cheap insurance policy. And so I think there was that, that fear. Clients saying, "Well, I've got an insurance. I don't need somebody taking care of security." Exactly. So if I can, if I can spend five thousand dollars in insurance policy, why why do you want me to spend twenty thousand dollars in the latest cool thing? Um, I think that that was an issue. And then we would they would you would see headlines about some isolated uh, claims denials. Jeff's argument about CISOs may or may not be accurate, but his second point about the kinds of headlines that cyber insurance stories sometimes receive is interesting. In the course of our conversation at Black Hat, Jeff brought up one case in particular that ruffled a few feathers a year or two ago. It concerned Mondelez International, a food and beverage company from the suburbs of Chicago. You may not be familiar with the name Mondelez, but you've almost certainly consumed their products. Oreo, Chips Ahoy, Triscuits, Cadbury, Toblerone, Hells, to name a few. Typically, cyber insurance doesn't make headlines. Mondelez was the exception to the rule. In the summer of 2017, a particularly nasty virus visited computers around the world. It was called NotPetya. NotPetya was a more powerful, more destructive variant of Petya, a ransomware program first spotted in the wild one year prior. The original Petya spread through infected email attachments. When it arrived on a computer, it would trigger a restart. Once restarted, the program prevented Windows from booting back up. Instead, it displayed a screen demanding a ransom to be paid out in Bitcoin, or else the computer would remain encrypted and unusable. Petya was bad, but its successor was much worse. Not Petya was similar to Petya, but equipped with new exploits like Eternal Romance and Eternal Blue, two leaked Windows exploits developed by the NSA. 
The exploits took advantage of zero-day vulnerabilities in Windows computers, allowing NotPetya to spread over networks without participation from any human hand. This wasn't the only thing that made it dangerous, though. The first Petya encrypted a computer's master boot record, preventing it from starting up. Every infected machine was delegated a unique code, which could be used to identify who paid their ransom. So if I, Ran, was infected with Petya and I paid the ransom, I could say, hey hackers, here's the money you asked for, my ID is XXXX, please unlock my computer. Not Petya kept Petya's ransom notice, but the code it gave each machine were randomly generated. So if I paid off my hackers, they'd have no means of connecting my payment with my computer. Even worse, NotPetya encrypts all kinds of files past the master boot record and does it so poorly that those files become damaged beyond repair in the process. So I've paid the hackers thousands of dollars worth of Bitcoin. In return, my computer remains completely unusable and even if the malware did go away, my system would probably be ruined anyway. This was the virus that stuck Mondelez International in 2017. It happened right in the middle of the workday. Computers froze while employees were using them. Email, access to files, and all kinds of internal cyber infrastructure was blocked. A few weeks and over $100 million later, the company finally got back to working order. The one positive that could be spun from Mondelez's financial nightmare was that they'd own an insurance policy covering their cyber assets. This, they figured, would transform a financial catastrophe into an inconvenient time sink. They filed a claim with their insurer, Zurich Insurance Group. Initially, everything seemed fine. Then, on June 1st, 2018, one year after the attack, Zurich sent a letter in response to Mondelez's claim. In it, it denied any responsibility to pay Mondelez for their incurred damages. This was confounding to many, considering the stated benefits in Mondelez's policy. According to court filings, quote, the policy provides annual coverage for, quote-unquote, all risks of physical loss or damage, specifically including, quote, physical loss or damage to electronic data, programs, or software, including physical loss or damage caused by the malicious introduction of a machine code or instruction. The policy also specifically provided other types of coverage, including but not limited to time element coverage, including the actual loss sustained and extra expense incurred by the insured during the period of interruption directly resulting from the failure of the insured electronics data processing equipment or media to operate resulting from malicious cyber damage, end quote. In other words, Mondelez was entitled to compensation in proportion to all damages and losses 
to their cyber valuables, as well as the time they lost trying to get back to normal operations. Every computer destroyed by NotPetya, all the data lost, all the time wasted was supposed to be covered under their policy. And yet, Zurich was claiming no responsibility. Their argument cited a strange kind of loophole common around the insurance industry, the war exclusion. Mondelez's policy included the following provision, quote, This policy excludes loss or damage directly or indirectly caused by or resulting from any of the following. A. Hostile or warlike action in time of peace or war, including action by any government or sovereign power, military, naval, or air force, or agent or authority of any party specified in the above. End quote. In plain English, Mondelez had a right to coverage, but not if their attackers were a government or military entity. The war exclusion is not specific to cyber insurance. If my house accidentally burns down, I'm entitled to compensation from my insurance provider. But if my house burns down because a nuclear bomb strikes the city I live in, my insurer will not cover my losses. It sounds unfair, but it's understandable. They probably have tens of thousands of other clients in the same city and not enough money to pay us all at once. In theory, the rule is smart. But Zurich Insurance Group was now claiming that this provision meant to protect against war, revolution, nuclear bombs was relevant to the case of a cookie company. Their reasoning rested on a series of statements released by Western governments in mid-February 2018, ascribing NotPetya to the Russian military. Well, if NotPetya was a Russian military operation, does it necessarily mean it constituted an act of war? This question has a few levels to it. For one thing, the intelligence that led the White House to blame Russia's military has not been made public. We have to trust the government's word on it. But let's take that as a given. Even if Russia did build NotPetya, they didn't actually aim it at the United States. It was released on the eve of Ukraine's Constitution Day holiday, and around four out of every five infections occurred in Ukraine. European and American victims appear to have been merely collateral damage. In fact, NatPetya hit some Russian computer systems too. Clearly, its spread was not particularly well controlled. The third thing to consider is whether a ransomware-style cyber attack actually constitutes a war or warlike action. How many times on malicious life have we told stories of Russia, China, the U.S. all hacking one another? And yet you wouldn't say these nations are at war. Even Russia and Ukraine aren't technically at war with one another. All these factors would suggest NotPetya wasn't a warlike attack, at least as it pertained to Mondelez. Still, the language in Mondelez's insurance policy was vague. It classified, quote, hostile or warlike action in time of peace or war, 
end quote, by any government or military entity as uninsurable. Was not Petya hostile? Well, sure, every cyber attack is hostile. When press got wind of the Mondelez case, reporters largely used it as evidence to why cyber insurance isn't worth it. Take the New York Times as an example and their headline, quote, Big companies thought insurance covered a cyber attack. They may be wrong, end quote. To Jeff, though, this interpretation misses the mark. The press says, hey, cyber insurance doesn't pay because their claim was denied. What the press doesn't understand, and most people don't understand, is that this company did not purchase cyber insurance. They did not purchase a standalone cyber insurance policy. They purchased a property insurance policy um, that had a cyber, uh, a component of cyber coverage in it. So one of the confusing aspects of cyber insurance is that there is overlaps So there can be a little bit of coverage in a property policy. There can be a little bit of coverage in a crime policy. But the coverages are exceptionally limited, and they're usually really really in small amounts. Anyhow, so there's been a lot of press about Mondelez in particular. And so people are looking at that and saying, see, cyber insurance doesn't pay. But what they don't really understand is that this company apparently did not buy a cyber insurance policy. What Jeffrey is saying, basically, is that cybersecurity is just excuse my sophisticated terminology here, weird. Data is complicated to get a handle on. Security is tough to evaluate. And because of that, clients should invest in dedicated cyber insurance instead of cyber insurance that comes bundled in with other property insurance. The distinction Jeff's making here isn't necessarily obvious, so I'll explain it with an analogy. Have you ever bought one of those two-in-one shampoo conditioners or an all-purpose cleaning spray from the convenience store? They sound great in concept, but have you ever actually used them? They're not that great, usually. Property insurance is kind of like an all-purpose cleaner. It sounds like a perfect solution for all your cleaning needs, and for many of them, Dirty countertops, tabletops, etc. It is. But an all-purpose cleaner is probably not going to clean a window as well as a window cleaner would, or an oven as well as an oven cleaner. Likewise, a property insurance policy with a cyber component is probably not going to address all potential cyber risks and damages like a dedicated cyber insurance policy could. A comprehensive, dedicated cyber insurance plan will probably be more detailed and thorough, and it will have been written by people who understand information technologies better than an ordinary insurance underwriter would. In an email follow-up to our interview, Jeffrey expanded on this view, writing, quote, This dispute, the Mondelez dispute, is actually a validation of the importance of standalone cyber insurance. While cyber coverages can overlap with other business insurance policy, most notably crime, property, and K&R, that often provide some limited coverage for cyber events, none are specifically designed to respond to all consequences of a breach such as this one. Cyber insurance policies contain war exclusions, but the inclusion does not should not apply to cyber terrorism, 
we are not aware of any cyber policies that declined to pay NotPetya claims. Cyber insurers did not view NotPetya as an act of war as defined in their policies, so cyber insurance covered it, end quote. This isn't to say that Zurich was innocent in what it did. Rather, according to Jeff, it's that Mondelez would have been less easily screwed over had they invested in a dedicated cyber policy. He used the comparison of another NotPetya victim, Merck and Company, a pharmaceutical company. Merck, like Mondelez, is currently in litigation with an insurer that provided them with property insurance. However, Merck also possessed dedicated cyber insurance. Their cyber insurance providers have paid in full all the expected recovery costs associated with what was lost and damaged by NotPetya. Recall the question we're trying to answer. Why does cyber insurance seem useful, yet receive little attention in the IT industry? I think we have an answer. The existing insurance policies are not always the policies the clients really need. According to Jeff, it is only by investing with insurers dedicated to cyber insurance specifically that you can feel comfortable that you won't be well, Mondelezed. Cyber insurance may be a few decades old, but it certainly still feels new. The take-up rates, meaning that the amount of the, the, the amount of companies that actually buy cyber insurance, um, is growing at a pretty good clip. Um, I would say that still, overall, probably less, certainly less than fifty percent of companies do purchase standalone cyber insurance. So a lot of space to grow. A lot of space to grow. I think particularly in the, in the small to middle market enterprise space, it's probably th- maybe 35% actually buy a standalone cyber insurance policy. But the trend is, is, is moving up. I think ultimately that um, not unlike property insurance, liability insurance, workers' comp insurance, or crime insurance, I think ultimately in sooner than we think, cyber insurance will be a standard part of uh, a business insurance portfolio. There are still major questions to be answered before cyber insurance can be considered as reliable as other more common forms of insurance. These questions are being litigated in courts today. Mondelez and Zurich are currently embroiled in their battle over $100 million, and the outcome of the case will likely set precedent for many future cases to come. In the meantime, insurers are trying to learn from their past mistakes and update their offerings to reflect demand and more accurately address the peculiarities of the IT space. Some of the early policies were poorly written. And so you had... What does it mean, poorly written? Poorly written. That means they had some exclusions or coverage limitations that are no longer in the policies today that created some... um, you mean examples? Sure. Uh, two examples. One was uh, a healthcare uh, called uh, healthcare system called Cottage Healthcare. They're a, a, a mid-sized healthcare system in California. They had a an attack, a cyber event, and um, a lot of files were exposed. Uh, they went and filed a claim against the cyber insurance policy. Had I think this was like 2012. 
And um, the claim was denied. And the reason the claim was denied was because there was a maintenance condition in the policy. The insured indicated that they, uh, I think in this instance, it was they, they update, they patch. I think it was a patching issue. And when they filed the claim, they didn't realize that they had that was a warranty, basically, that, that they had to continue to patch. And because the, the client didn't exactly. patch, exactly. the claim was denied. The claim was denied. And you think that was a mistake from the insurer, insurer's uh, angle? I think um, everybody's learning as they go. And I think early on, it it's, gets back to the underwriting issue. Is We don't know what we don't know. And so early on, the insurers look at that and say, okay, if you're, if you're patching actively, um, that's a good thing for us. And we're going to give you a rate credit. So there are no maintenance conditions in the policies today. They've all been taken out. Um, the second one and one of the more, more noteworthy um, examples is P.F. Chang's. So P.F. Chang's got hit. They had a big breach, exposed a lot of credit card records. There was a lot of fraud and whatnot with those uh, credit cards. And there's these PCI DSS penalties that most security people are familiar with. And they are penalties that are included in merchant services agreements for credit card companies between credit card companies and vendors. So in the agreements, in this instance, uh, PF Chang's agreed that if there was an event um, and it was their fault, then they agree to compensate, in this example, I think it was Bank of America, for card reissuance expenses, uh, any fraudulent claims, and then there are actually additional fines and penalties in the contract. Bank of America came back to P.F. Chang's and said, hey, where's our $2 million? bucks?" So P.F. Chang said, okay, we'll stroke a check for $2 million. bucks. we got cyber insurance. We're good. They went back to the cyber insurer and presented the claim. The cyber insurer said, there's no coverage in this because we... We exclude contractual liability. That two million that dollar didn't get reimbursed. That's correct, and that was uh, not a not a, a particularly uh, great moment in cyber insurance because um, people would expect those things to be covered. So now there's specific coverage grants for PCI DSS liability. So you're saying that the industry learned learned its lessons from past failures with customers. That's correct. It's going to be a gradual coming of age for cyber insurance. But maybe in the next few decades, after Mondelez invents the quintuple-stuffed Oreo, long after the Malicious Life podcast has passed on to the other side, it will become as ubiquitous as property, liability, and the other pillars of the insurance world. Eventually, it will have to be that way. Both sides, companies and insurers, have an incentive to make this thing work. We've just got a few kinks to figure out along the way. That's it for this episode of Malicious Life. This week's question is, as you might have expected, what's your opinion on cyber insurance? Is it useful? Is it necessary? And above all, can it be trusted? 
tell us what you think via Twitter at at Ranlevy, that's R-A-N-L-E-V-I, or at Malicious Life. And as always, if you have stories you want to share with me or suggestions for cool new topics for future episodes of Malicious Life, I'm always happy to hear from you. Write to me via Twitter or email at ran at ranlevy.com. That's R-A-N-L-E-V-I dot com. Our website is malicious.life, where you'll find all of our past episodes and full transcripts. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Thanks again to CyberReason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye. CK Music.